So we now come to the final chapter of John's first letter. And he wants to sum up what has gone before and to underline the acid test of all our relationships. And we'll find him being firm and uncompromising. He's telling it like it is. Faith and love are once more working in tandem. So let's read from John 5, and it's the first 12 verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses the spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God, and God has testified about his Son. All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his son. And this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. So the first statement we read was that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now in our world of shifting truths, where you can proclaim to be whatever you want to be, that unequivocal statement lays a marker in the sand. This is fundamental to our faith. And as I was thinking about this passage, I wondered if John was remembering that day long ago when he and the other disciples were with Jesus in northern Israel near Caesarea Philippi. Now I'm sure you know the occasion when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And then of course he followed it up with the more personal question, who do you say that I am? And perhaps even now, John blushed when he recalled that he had not had the same courage or depth of belief as Peter, because Peter made that famous avowal, didn't he? You are the Messiah, 
the son of the living God. And everything rests on that foundation, the one that put Peter put into words that day. And Jesus commended Peter, and he reinforced his testimony in those words that I think we frequently misunderstand, when he said, you are Peter. And the Greek word petros, kipha in the Hebrew, is the word that's equivalent to a pebble, something small, a stone, a small thing. You are Peter. But then Jesus adds, on this rock, I will build my church. And the word rock is the word for a mighty cliff. So the rock that the church is built on is not Peter, but it's Jesus and who he is. The Messiah, the Hebrew word, or Christ, the Greek word. Part of the triune Godhead. So that is fundamental. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that is so important. And this title, Messiah, tells us two things about who Jesus is. It tells us that he is divine, and it tells us that he's a deliverer. That's what is bound up in this messianic title, which just means anointed one. So this human being, Jesus, is divine. If you want to know what God is like, meet Jesus. Paul put it this way when he wrote to the Colossians, for in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And of course, speaking to Philip, Jesus was even more specific. Now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. That's all we need. Jesus answered, for a long time I have been with you. Yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? So if you've met Jesus, you have effectively met God, his Father. And secondly, in the Messiah, that anointed one, we find deliverance. Because this human being is God, he can do more for you than anyone else can do for you. He can deliver you from sickness. He can deliver you from sin. He can deliver you from death. He can deliver you from fear. And note how John says that Jesus is the Messiah. It's a tiny word, but in this context it is so important. It's something that we can not say about other human beings of that time. Julius Caesar was, Jesus is. Now you may believe that Jesus is the most, or was the most wonderful person who ever lived, but if you believe he is dead today, you are not a child of God. So Jesus is, and that two-letter word is the good news of Christianity. Even though Jesus died, Jesus is alive today. It's not what he was that makes us believers. It is what he is. And John also tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. If Jesus was a Messiah, we could assume that there were others who could do all the things that he can do. But Jesus has said he is the Christ. Therefore, he is the only one There is nobody else who can do all these things. 
No one else can save me and deliver me from those things which blight my life and my character. Therefore, you are the child of God if you really believe that the human being Jesus is the Christ, God, the Deliverer, the Saviour. So the question each of us needs to ask ourselves is, who is Jesus to us? Do we believe that Jesus is the Christ? Everything else flows from that understanding. If we do, we will love God. And therefore, we must also love the rest of the family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. You may be familiar with the old proverb that says, hurt my child and you hurt me. This is true, isn't it, of ordinary families. You see it in television programmes. Families who are usually at loggerheads with each other will join forces if one of their number is attacked by an outsider. So John shows us that the acid test of our relationship is that if we hurt a child of God, then we hurt God. And therefore we cannot say we love God if we hate his children. So, who then are God's children? Let's be quite clear about this. Not everyone is a child of God. Today, the attitude is, oh, everybody should have prizes. But the Bible makes it plain that there are two distinct families on earth, those who belong to God and those who are children of the world. Not everybody is a child of God. And, of course, these two families, the children of God and the children of the world, don't get on with each other, and they never will. And the Bible makes no bones about the fact that there will always be tension and division between the children of God and the children of the world. So what is the key to knowing who is a true child of God? It's our faith. This is what marks us out from everyone else. We have, I hope, a faith. And it's not something vague and general. It's not about a benign figure above the bright blue sky who will make sure we're okay eventually. And note that John doesn't say whoever believes that there is a God is his child. Many people believe there's a God. And they have all kinds of ideas, don't they, as to what he's like. Belief in God never made anybody his child. It is only faith in Jesus and accepting him as the one who saves us and is Lord of our lives that makes us a child of his heavenly father. So having defined a child of God, we must now ask, do you love the people who believe this? If so, then you love the father. This, of course, gives lie to the idea that we can be Christians without going to church. And I know when I work for Messianic Testimony, you get people ringing up and you'd have a conversation with them. And you perhaps ask, well, what fellowship do you attend? Particularly if it was somewhere that I knew there might be where the churches were. And then they'd say, oh, uh, we don't go to any of the local churches. You know, none of them make us feel welcome because we have a heart for Israel or whatever reason it may be. 
And you think, well, how will the churches ever learn to love the Jewish people if you are not there telling them? We can't be Christians without going to church, being part of the family. How can we love God if we ignore his children? How can we be a child of God if we have nothing to do with his family? Ignore his family and you are ignoring God. Hurt his family and you are hurting God. Criticize his family and you are criticizing God. But love his family and you are loving God. How do we know we love each other? It's not simply having a warm, bubbly feeling inside. Because at one level, Christianity isn't concerned with feelings, though God, of course, at times does touch us through our emotions. But our feelings should not be the test of whether we love each other. But when we're part of that circle of, our, of love, our love for the Father is shown through our love for each other. And our love for God's children shows that we love God. And you'll see that in verse 3, John adds one more thing. And again, it's nothing to do with feelings. The proof is practical. If you want to know if you are loving your father and your brothers and sisters, do you obey him? Do you obey him? <clears throat> when we love, God's commands are not burdensome. When you love your husband or your wife, and they say you shouldn't love anyone else. That's not irksome if you are in a loving relationship. In that situation, you want to do those things that please the other person. And so we love one another, and we love the Father. And John stresses the importance of understanding who Jesus is because he knows that persecution is coming. And he wants to be certain that his congregation are anchored on these basics. If they are, then they will be able to withstand whatever the future brings. And that, of course, is one reason why his words have been so important to believers throughout the ages and also for us today. And then, in verse 4, John slips in a new thought. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Wow, that's quite a statement, isn't it? Are you a superhero? Do you feel that you can go out from here and defeat this evil world? It's a bit of a circular argument again. And if you use spreadsheets on the computer, you may get that annoying warning message about a circular reference when your formula is trying to calculate itself. And here John states that we believe in Jesus, therefore we're born of God, so we can have the victory over the world. And who can win this battle? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So how does this work out in our day-to-day -day lives? Paul, again writing to the Ephesians this time, describes us as seated in the heavenlies. He wrote, for God, for he, God, raised us from the dead, along with Christ, and seated us with him in heavenly realms, 
because we are united with Christ Jesus. Do you feel you're sitting up on that throne in the heavenly realms this morning? Because already, in one sense, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, far above the tumult and turmoil of this world. This is our heavenly spiritual abode. But unfortunately, we know all too well uh, that on Monday morning, we shall be back in the valley, where all around us we find arguments, stress, bad language, dangerous drivers, slow people in the supermarket queue, screaming children, and of course the million and one other niggles that go to make up life in a fallen world. And this seems at odds with with the life John is picturing, where we are told that as a child of God we have already defeated this evil world. It is, of course, our faith in the Lord Jesus and what he accomplished in his death and resurrection that allows us to be overcomers. Christ has already won the victory for us. The world did its worst to Jesus. It hounded him and slandered him. It branded him a heretic and friend of sinners. It judged him, crucified him, and buried him. It did everything humanly possible to eliminate him. And it failed. After the cross came the resurrection. After the shame came the glory. That is the Jesus who is the one with us. One who saw life at its grimmest, to whom life did its worst, who died, who conquered death, and who offers us a share in that victory that was his. If we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we have with us always Christ the victor, to make us victorious. Paul said again, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now unfortunately, the devil doesn't know when to give up. He has been defeated, yet he persists in fighting the war. He is a malignant enemy who won't lie down and stay dead. But he is determined to take as many people down with him in defeat as he possibly can. Imagine the scene of a fire, perhaps in a forest or in a barn such as we visited the other Sunday. The fire brigade are there and have successfully extinguished the blaze. Yet still they stay on the site for many more hours. Why? Because every so often some glowing ashes will be fanned into flames and if left unchecked could start a new blaze. This is the situation we are in. The power of the evil one was vanquished, was put out when Jesus defeated death and rose again. But the devil is still in the business of fanning the ashes of his wicked schemes into flames. So we need to be vigilant and alert like those firemen, ready to stamp on the flames and stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. Whilst our final victory has been won, we are still in a daily struggle. And I would suggest that we are in a struggle on two fronts. 
on what we might describe as the inward personal level, we strive, don't we, to make our life more Christ-like day by day. And then looking outward, we need to do our utmost to share the good news of Jesus' love and the life that he wants to give with those that the devil is attempting to drag down to his kingdom of death. For this is the love of God, John wrote back in verse 3, that we keep his commandments. And of course, one of those commandments was to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And you can read about it in Matthew 28, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Next week, as Rachel has told us, the Gelsthorpe family will be here. And they have followed that instruction in a very real way. And it has taken them to Japan. For each one of us, our mission field will be different. But wherever God has placed us, we should be seeking to fulfill the great commission of spreading the gospel. We then come to verses 6 to 9, where Jesus states that Jesus came by water and blood, and the Spirit is the third witness of this. At his baptism, Jesus was immersed in the River Jordan, and the Spirit, in that visible form of a dove, descended on him. And God said, you are my son whom I love. At his death, Jesus' blood was shed for us. And we remember that as we take the wine during the communion service. So these were two outward signs for the people who saw Jesus. And the third witness John speaks of is the Holy Spirit. It is he who convicts and convinces men of sin and their need for salvation. While we are God's children, the Holy Spirit will be with us, inspiring us with the truth of the gospel, that inner conviction that what we read in the Bible is true and relevant to whatever situation we find ourselves in. As Paul eloquently puts it elsewhere, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When anybody makes a decision about Jesus, they have two fundamental choices. Do they believe what other people say about him, or do they believe what God has said about his son? Who would you rather believe, a fallible human being or the creator God? When we reject Jesus, we are, as John says in verse 10, calling God a liar. That is pretty strong stuff. Now, it seems obvious to say that until you become a believer, you don't believe. But effectively, that's the way it is. And as an unbeliever, perhaps you met many Christians who were so jolly sure of their faith. And you might have found that very irritating. Nobody could be that sure. But of course, it's only when you believe the evidence for yourself that you find that extra witness within you. Why do I believe that Jesus is alive? Not simply because of the evidence outside, but fundamentally because the spirit of Jesus is in my heart, giving me the evidence inside. Finally then, John comes full circle as he concludes this paragraph by reminding us that this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. 
And this puts us back where we started in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is sufficed has become a child of God. When we have that faith, we have the victory in our, that Messiah won for us at Calvary. And Jesus' victory has given us eternal life. This means both a new quality of life and a new quantity of life. Real life is never so alive until it is the abundant life given by Jesus. It is also never ending life because not even death can take it away from us. This then is why faith wins the victory because nothing the devil can do will have any long-term impact on us. Ultimately, all he promises is death. Through Jesus Christ, we have the power to live a victorious life now and then enjoy his presence for all eternity. Amen.